uh, today's uh, scripture reading is from First uh, and Second Samuel. Um, First Samuel uh, 18, verse 17 to 29. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the lost battle. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, uh, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel and Meholophite for wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, Ah, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all the servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him. Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskin of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law before the time had expired. David arose and went along with his men, and killed 200 of the Philistines, and David brought their four skins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the law was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. 1 Samuel 19, verse 11 to 17. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your wife tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at his head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, he said, He's sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the peel of goat's hair at its hat. Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? First Samuel. Uh, 25, verse 40 to 44. 
When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And he rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of our Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Porti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. 2 Samuel 3, verse uh, 12 to 16. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, for whom I pay the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Portio, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. And, and Adna said to him, Go, turn. And he returned. Second Samuel 6, verse 16-23. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark, brought in the ark of the Lord, and set it in the in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honor himself today, and covering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellow shamelessly, uncovers himself. And David said to Abigail, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the peoples of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I'll make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor, 
and Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Thank you, Joshua, for reading that long scripture. Morning, everyone. Yes, thank you, Joshua, for reading those passages to us today. Uh, my name is Eric. If you don't know me, I'm the pastor here at the bridge. In the past few weeks, we have been looking at relationships. We've been looking at different types of relationships, and we've been looking at how King David handled these different relationships in his life to see what we can learn from them. So the first week, we looked at his relationship with King Saul and saw what that has to teach us about how to relate with authority or people in authority over us. The second week, we looked at David and Jonathan, and we learned about friendship and what it takes to have a healthy and strong friendship. And then so far, in the relationships we've been looking at, David is this bright, shining example of all the things you should do in relationships. Right? He, he gets a lot of stuff right. But the reality is, David was far from perfect. Especially when it came to his married life, and his parenting, he made some huge mistakes. And today, we're looking at David's relationship with his first wife, a lady named Michal, which was a mess. And as we'll see, each of them did things that contributed to that mess, as is often the case when marriages break down. But we're going to look at their mistakes. We're going to see if there's anything we can learn about how to have healthy marriages by avoiding those mistakes and see what we can learn from them. So today we're looking at David's marriage with Michal, and we'll see that healthy marriages require companionship, forgiveness, and commitment. They require companionship, forgiveness, and commitment. And again, we apologize if there are any issues with the slides. We're having some technical difficulties today. Uh, but we'll look at companionship, forgiveness, commitment, and how to get these things. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that your word shows us not only people who do really good following you and set perfect examples that we feel like we could never live up to, but that it also shows us real people who make mistakes just like we do and who face similar situations to what we face. And we pray that as we look at this marriage today, that you would be showing us what we can learn for our own relationships and our own marriages through their example and how that can draw us closer to you and deeper in our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see from David and Michal's marriage is that marriage requires companionship. Now, like I said, Michal is David's first wife. He ends up having many wives, which is a big part of the reason that he's such a terrible husband and a father. We'll get to that later. But on many levels, David and Michal's marriage it just seems doomed from the start. We're told in 1 Samuel 18 that David, originally King Saul came to him and promised his older daughter as David's wife, a girl named Merab. And then when it was time for David to marry her, Saul gave her to another man instead. And we don't know why. It could be that David actually refused and said, I don't want to marry her. It could be that she was like, I don't want to marry David. It could be that it was a political thing and Saul was just in one of his bad moods towards David and was like, I want to hurt him, so I'm going to give the girl who should be his wife to someone else. We don't know. All we know is that she ends up married to another man. 
And some time goes by and Saul learns that his younger daughter, Michal, actually loves David, which is a big deal. Like she is unique. Nowhere else in the entire Old Testament are we told that a woman loves a man. So right from the start, we can see she is strong. She has a strong personality. She's unique among the women of the Bible. And what does her father do with her love? He sees an opportunity to use it to advance his own political schemes. And so he offers her to David as a wife, not because he wants her to be happy, not because he wants to keep his word. Remember when David was fighting Goliath, David was like, what's going to happen to the man who kills Goliath? And one of the rewards was the king's going to give his daughter to this man in marriage. But Saul doesn't offer her in order to keep his word. Saul offers her, we're told right here in the passage, because he wants her to be a snare to David. Now, what does that mean that she will be a snare? Well, remember Saul didn't like David at this point. He wanted David dead. And so this, this idea of her being a snare probably works on two levels. First, Saul set a bride price that involved David having to go into battle and fight lots of Israel's enemies. It would put him in great danger. And Saul thought, he's going to get killed. This will be wonderful. He'll die. I don't have to be a murderer. Win-win. And so she'd be a snare by putting him in a situation where he would most likely die and Saul could be rid of his enemy. But even if that didn't happen, she could be a snare on another level. We're going to see later in the, in the story, we learn that Michal worships idols. And there are other places in the Old Testament where this word snare is connected to idolatry and people worshiping idols. Saul, he knew that God was blessing David because David was being faithful to God. And Saul thought, if my daughter, Michal, marries David, then she can take David and have him start worshiping her false gods. And then that will take God's blessing and favor away from David and it will hurt him. So either way, Saul's like, I'm going to get David by offering my wife to him in marriage. And just a side note, that, that idea of, of one spouse who doesn't love God drawing the other spouse away, that's a very real danger in today's world as, as it was in the ancient world. I've known many people over the years who seem to be following God faithfully and then they fall in love with someone who's not a Christian and they just turn away and leave their faith. And if you are here today and you're single and you're like, what does the sermon about marriage have to do with me? Well, here's one spot that this is really relevant to you. If you're single and you want, to marry, you want to follow Jesus with your life, one of the best steps you can take towards doing that is that when you look for a spouse, you look for someone who's going to help you grow closer to Jesus, not someone who's going to draw you away from him. That was what Saul wanted to happen with David, that his daughter would draw David away. He, he sees his daughter falling in love, but rather than seek to bless her, he wants to use her to hurt the man she loves. And so he does that by offering David the chance to marry her. And did you notice David's response when, when they offer him to marry Saul's daughter? He says, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? Did you notice when David said that before in the passage? 
when Saul's other daughter was offered to him as a wife. He, offered, he, he responded the exact same way to the offer to marry Michal as to the offer to marry Merib. Like, ladies, if you are madly in love with a man and your father says to the man, you have my blessing to marry my daughter. And the man says, yeah, I mean, her, her sister, it's all the same to me as long as they're part of your family. How excited would you be to spend the rest of your life with this guy? Anyone who's like, sign me up, I'm in. No, it's, it's sort of like a warning bells for their marriage at this point, right? You, you probably wouldn't be too excited about jumping into that marriage. And to make matters worse, we see Michal, she's this strong, unique woman who loves David, the only woman in the entire Old Testament who's told we, she loves a man. We're never told whether or not David loves Michal. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, we don't know but it does tell us why he was excited to marry her. In chapter 18, verse 26, it says, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. He could have cared less who he was marrying as long as Saul was her daddy. To David, the marriage was about her dad, not about her. Again, warning bells. So between her father using this relationship as a way of putting political plots into place, and her husband using this relationship to put himself closer to the seat of power, there are serious red flags about this marriage very, very early on. There's an imbalance. She's way more into him than he is into her. They have different goals in the, in the marriage, like love versus power. They don't seem on the same page. They each seem to be seeking to use the other person to seek their own goals, not really companions with one another. And since companionship is so important to, to marriage, their marriage is in danger right from the very start. And when we fast forward to the next scene between them that we read, this lack of companionship is taken to a whole new level. It starts out looking promising. Mikal learns that her dad has sent assassins to their house to kill David. And rather than supporting her dad, the king, she instead helps her husband, which is a good thing, right? They're working as a team, they're cooperating. She lets him down through the window so he can escape and run away. She places an idol in the bed, which is how we know that she worshiped idols because she had one in her house. And she pretends that it's David and he's just asleep so that the assassins don't come in and, and realize he's escaped. It's looking like there's promise and hope for their marriage because they're working together, except when David escapes, he never comes back for her. <laughs> That's a problem, huh? And here's the thing. He probably had very, very good reasons for leaving her behind. If he brought her with him, her life would be in constant danger from assassins chasing them down. By leaving her behind, she's safe. He can literally say, like, I'm saving her life by leaving her behind. Second, she was raised in the royal family. She's probably used to a certain standard of living. And he knows, I'm going to be on the run. It's going to be tough. If, if she's with me, I cannot give her the standard of living that she is used to, that she deserves. If I leave her behind, her father will make sure that she is taken care of. It's better this way. And third, she's not trained as a soldier. She's only going to slow him down, which actually puts both of them in greater danger. By leaving her behind, he's, he's increasing the chances that both of them will survive 
and live on into the future. Like I said, lots and lots of good reasons for leaving her behind. I know in our world, lots of couples spend lots of time apart, like long periods of time in a row for various reasons. My guess, I could be wrong. I know there are lots of different circumstances. My guess is David's reasons for leaving his wife behind here are probably stronger than most of the reasons couples in today's world stay apart for long term from their spouses. And yet, despite all these good motivations for leaving her, the distance between them puts a wedge in their relationship that will never be overcome. They end up going years without seeing each other. By the time they're reunited, their marriage has passed this point of no return. And I realize there are sometimes circumstances in life where you don't have a choice. As a couple, you just have to be apart for a prolonged period of time. If you're in that situation where you have no choice, where you have to be apart, I'm very sorry for you. If there's anything we as a church can do to support you through that time, please let us know. But if you have the option to be together and you're considering living apart, I want to encourage you, think through whether there's a way to stay together as a couple. Like, it'll probably require sacrifices on both sides, but marriage is a commitment to be together, companionship, being friends with one another, spending time with one another. It's an essential ingredient in that process of being together. And we see from David's example with Michal that extended time apart can drive a wedge in the marriage that just keeps you apart. So companionship, it's essential to a healthy marriage. David and Michal, they don't have it, and so their relationship starts to move apart. But companionship is not the only essential ingredient in a healthy marriage. Healthy marriages also require forgiveness. See, the passages we looked at in today's scripture reading, that is everything the Bible tells us about Michal and her life. I know it was a long passage, but I wanted you to hear the entire story, everything we know about Michal. I don't know if you noticed this, it leaves a lot of questions unanswered about her life. Like we, we read that at some point after David left, Saul gave her to another husband. We know the husband's name. We know that he loved her. We know nothing else about this marriage. Like how long did he wait before giving her to the second husband? Why did he do it? Was it a political move? Like I'm going to hurt David and I'm going to take away his access to power? Was it the move of a caring father? Like, I don't know if you noticed this, but when Michal helps David escape, Saul finds out what she's done. He's furious with her. Like, why did you help my enemy? And she says, oh, well, he threatened to kill me if I didn't help. We don't know why she lied. But if you are a loving, caring father and you learn that your daughter's husband is threatening her life, what are you going to do? You're going to do whatever is in your power to get your daughter out of that marriage because you love her. Maybe that's why he did it. Maybe it was actually at her initiative. We know she's a, a strong and unique woman. In ancient Israel, for a woman to die childless was a great shame. She had no children at this point. Her husband's gone. Who knows when or if he's coming back. Maybe she's receiving word that he's building up a collection of other wives as he travels. And it's easy to think he's forgotten about me. He's never coming back. I'm going to die childless, which is the worst fate possible for anyone in my culture. My biological clock is ticking. My dad has the power 
to stop this marriage and give me to a new husband. Maybe that was her initiative. We don't know. We don't know whether she loved her new husband. We don't know whether she approved of this second marriage. There's so much we don't know, but there's one thing we definitely know about her. She had a hard life. She had a hard life. Being dragged around from husband to husband, being used as a pawn in her father's political games and then later in her husband's political games, it is tough, right? She, she marries David. Who knows if he loves her? It's just a political thing maybe. But then David runs away and that hurts to be abandoned. And then she's given to another husband, which who knows whether she wanted that or not. And then after her father dies, David makes this political alliance. And part of the deal is that the guy making an alliance with David has to bring Michal back from her current husband. So they show up at the house, they drag her away. Her husband follows them along the road, screaming and crying and just miserable for a long way, like through multiple towns. He's just following them crying until the military shows up and is like, go home. He has no choice. Like that is a hard life. And even when David brings her back to him, it, it appears from all appearances like a political thing, not a love thing. Like the, the guy David's making an alliance with, he shows up with David's first wife and David throws a huge banquet to welcome this guy making the alliance. We don't even know if David said hi to his wife. She's just there, but may as well not be there. It's completely political. David wants the nation to know he's a legitimate king because he's connected to Saul's family. And Michal being there shows I am connected to Saul's family. He doesn't want the shame of his first wife being married to another man. So he takes her away from him, even though this man is a loving, adoring husband. He doesn't care about the despairing husband. He doesn't care about the hurt he may be causing to his wife. At that moment, David is only concerned about his public image. Having her back makes that public image better. So he'll do what it takes, no matter who it hurts, no matter how it impacts her, he's just going to do it. Make no mistake about it. Michal suffered a lot during her life. But then look what she does with that hurt. When we fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant, this place where God's glory dwells in the midst of Israel. It's been away from its home for decades. It was captured by enemies and then it was sent back to Israel, but they couldn't send it back to the tent where it was supposed to stay. But David, now that he's king and his kingdom is established, he's finally bringing it back. This is a day of national celebration. Men, women, and children, they're all there. David Possibly this is the most excited he has ever been in his life. This is a huge deal. He's dancing and celebrating out in the streets with his entire being. He's taken off his royal robe so he has more freedom of movement to, to dance and celebrate God. To be clear, he's almost certainly modestly covered, just not showing off his royalty, showing off his status. And they bring the ark in, they put it in its place, and David offers loads of sacrifices. He gives a parting gift to every single person who's there. And then he goes home to bless his family and speak words of life over them and ask for God's favor to shine on them. And there's one person who's not at the celebration. Any guesses who? 
Yeah, it's Mikal. And again, we don't know why she skipped the party. I have a guess. It could be wrong. My guess, she's just got years of bitterness and resentment towards David. And that makes her want to have nothing to do with the things that make him happy anymore. And so instead of joining the celebration, she's watching through the window. So a little creative story arc here. I don't know if you noticed when she helps him escape, he escapes through the window. She watches through the window as he runs away. And then he never comes back for her. Watching him through a window brings back so many hard memories for her. And then she's watching through the window as David is dancing in the street, bringing the art back. How much of that experience just watching through the window brings back those painful memories? How much hurt is dragged up in her heart by seeing him through a window again? To what extent does the pain of her mistreatment, being abandoned by the man she loved, the man she was helping, how much does that lead to what happens next? We don't know the exact answers, but we know that she suffers a lot. And rather than forgiving, she lets her hurt build into bitterness and resentment. And when David gets home, she ruins his day by unloading all of it onto him. She refused to let go of the hurt. She refused to forgive what happened in the past. And it destroys whatever is left of their marriage at that point. Now, I hope on a really, really deep level that no one here has experienced the level of hurt in their marriage that Mikhail had to go through. Like the experience of being used for political purposes, abandoned, given to another man, dragged away from the new husband, like that, it had to be terrible. But even if you've never suffered like her, I know for a fact, every marriage involves hurt on some level whether it's a wife feeling like she's always second place to her husband's job, or whether it's a husband feeling jealous because he thinks his wife is flirting with another man, whether it's the pain of your spouse not carrying their load around the house and feeling like you're just taken for granted, or words spoken to hurt and tear down, or any number of other things. All marriages involve pain and hurt. And for a marriage to be healthy, Forgiveness is essential. Because without forgiveness, you get stuck in the hurt. You never move past it. I really believe after everything she suffered, if Mikal had chosen to forgive David for the hurt that he genuinely caused in her life, rather than letting it grow into bitterness, they could have lived happily ever after. I, I believe that. Obviously, I'm filling in a lot of blanks in the story by saying that, but I think that's the case. But given the fact that the only interaction between them after she comes back is marked by sarcasm and bitterness and resentment, it's probably a safe bet that from the moment she got back, those are the things that have marked their marriage. And rather than seeking to grow as a person and learn to forgive, she just lets the bitterness and resentment grow until it can't stay inside her anymore and it needs to get out. Forgiveness is essential for a healthy marriage. And because it wasn't present in David and Michal's marriage, their relationship fell apart. It's true today too. If you want a healthy marriage, forgiveness is essential. It's not easy. Definitely not easy, but essential. I mean, think about it. You only need to forgive if you have been hurt. 
That means that any situation where you need to forgive, it's already a difficult situation. Forgiveness takes work. If you're trying to forgive in your marriage and you're struggling with it, I encourage you, find someone in the church that you can talk to about it. Helping one another grow through struggles like this, it's part of why God gave us a church family and didn't just have us live the Christian life on our own. But I know from David and Mikhail's example and from my personal experience, without forgiveness, you cannot have a healthy marriage. So healthy marriages, they need companionship, they need forgiveness, and they need one other key ingredient we see in this story that actually makes companionship and forgiveness possible. And that third ingredient is commitment. See, even once they have this blow up and their marriage has reached the point, it seems to be the point of no return in this confrontation, there still could have been hope for them as a couple. Right? As a pastor, I've had multiple people come to me from different marriages and say to me, my marriage is over. I'm divorcing my spouse. Like there's nothing this person can do to win me back. It is done. It is over. And more than one couple who has told me this is still married today and not just married, but happily married. There are times where we think the marriage is past the point of no return, but things can turn around. So if you're in a place today where you're like, Eric, my marriage has no companionship. There's no forgiveness. There's no hope. I want to encourage you with God, there's always hope. But to reach the point where things can turn around, it requires commitment. See, in our world, divorce is held out as this great solution for horrible marriages. And the reality is if divorce is an option on the table for you, it kills creativity in your marriage. It kills problem solving when problems arrive in your marriage. Because the option to walk out the door and start fresh in a new relationship that doesn't have any of these problems yet is always easier than working through the problems right now. Working through the problems, it takes sacrifice and it takes creativity and it takes hard work. It's not easy. And you're only going to be willing to put in that hard work if you have commitment to one another, if you know there's no plan B. This marriage, making it work, is my only option. And I realize a couple caveats as I say that. One, if your partner walks out the door and files for divorce, I realize there's not really much you can do about that to stop them. So even if you're committed to the relationship, divorce could still happen. But what I'm talking about is you making a commitment that I'm not going to walk away. Like I realize my spouse may make decisions that are out of my control, but for the decisions within my control, I'm here. I'm committed to doing what it takes to make it work. The second caveat, I realize there are some marriages where staying puts you in physical danger. If that's you, get out. Find someone you can talk to about what is happening there. I am not saying put yourself in, in physical danger. I am not saying to endure abuse. If that's you, please get out and talk to someone. But as a general rule, commitment needs to be a priority in a healthy marriage. And we see in David and Mikhail's marriage that a lack of commitment leads to the end of the relationship. A lack of commitment leads to the end of the relationship. For them, divorce wasn't an option, right? Like it would be bad for his image as a king. We learn later in the Bible that if someone marries someone, a wife who was formerly married to a king, that person then has a claim to a throne. So for political purposes, David would never, ever, ever divorce her. 
But what David had that made him so easy to move on from Michal was other wives. He could walk away from his commitment to her because he had other people in his life who could fulfill the exact same role that she was meant to fulfill. You know, there's nowhere in the Old Testament where polygamy, marrying multiple wives, is explicitly banned, but it's very clear that it's outside God's plan for marriage and it causes harm. And one of the biggest ways that the Bible teaches this is that every time polygamy shows up in the Bible, it ends in pain and heartache for at least one of the parties involved. Every time polygamy shows up, someone gets hurt. The Bible is clear that God's good plan for marriage is one man, one woman committed to each other for life. And any time people mess with that, it leads to hurt. And so because David has these other wives that he can turn to for companionship, he can turn to them to get his sexual urges fulfilled, they can provide him with heirs, he can easily walk away from his marriage from Michal, to Michal and ignore or avoid the hard work that would have been required to fix it. The passage ends with telling us that Michal had no child until the day of her death. You know, as a kid, I used to read this story primarily through like a supernatural lens. And I'd be like, oh yeah, that was God's way of punishing her for not respecting David's worship of God. Maybe that's the case. But the older I get and the more I read the story, I wonder if this was a far more natural cause. Their marriage reached the point of no return. Rather than work to sort through all the issues and the bitterness and resentment in her heart and the hurt that David felt as well, it's easier to just avoid one another stay at opposite ends of the palace, don't talk to one another, never, never sleep together again, and she dies childless. That's the inevitable, inevitable end of a marriage without commitment, is that the relationship falls apart and eventually ceases to exist. But commitment, it forces you to find creative solutions to problems. It forces you to work together through hard issues. It forces you to grow so that what seemed like a lost cause can actually become a blessing, not just for you, but for your children and your families and the wider community around you. See, my guess is that all of us, whether we're married already or not, if we ever get married, we want a healthy marriage. And we can see from David and Mikal's disaster of a marriage that there are three there are probably more than three, but we see three from them, three ingredients that make a healthy marriage possible, companionship, forgiveness, and commitment. But we also see from their example that our natural human tendency is to not do these things. We tend to ignore one another rather than pursue companionship. We have this tendency to hold on to our hurt and let it grow into bitterness and resentment rather than forgive. We look for ways out so we don't have to do hard work on the marriage rather than staying committed. And so how do we reach the point where we can actually do these things and actually have a healthy marriage? Well, let's look at getting these things. And the first step, like I said, is to admit that they don't come naturally. I was talking to someone once, their marriage was falling apart and they told me, Eric, I've tried and tried. I gave it years of trying, probably 10 years of really trying, but my spouse never changed. They never gave me the things I need in my marriage, and there came a point where I just couldn't keep trying anymore. You know, I think as humans, our general 
setting as humans is we're excited to offer companionship in a marriage if our spouse offers it back on a similar level. I think we're generally willing to forgive if the other person says sorry and truly changes their behavior. I think we're generally willing to be committed as long as we can see the value of being committed. But when the relationship starts to feel unbalanced and it feels like all the weight is falling on our shoulders to keep it together, or when forgiveness is required over and over and over and over again for the same things and there is no change, or when commitment becomes too costly and we can start seeing the gains of leaving, we all too easily check out. And if you stay married long enough, I have a secret for you. Most of you probably know this already. But if you stay married long enough, there will be times where the relationship feels unbalanced and it feels like everything's falling on your shoulders to hold it together. If you stay married long enough, you will have to forgive your spouse for the same things over and over and over, and it will drive you nuts. If you stay married long enough, there will be times where it feels like the grass is greener on the other side and life will be better if you could just get out and find someone to marry who's a better fit for you. These ingredients in a healthy marriage, they do not come naturally to us when things get difficult. So how do we get them? And the answer is experiencing Jesus' spousal love for us. See, the New Testament actually portrays Jesus as the ideal husband who came to earth to seek a bride for himself. Ephesians chapter two tells us that he came to pursue us when we were alienated from God and wanted nothing to do with us, with him, sorry. And rather than avoiding us and saying, that's what they deserve, he pursued us. He sought a relationship with us. He sought companionship with us at great cost to himself. Ephesians chapter one, verse seven, it tells us that Jesus gives us a forgiveness we don't deserve, even though it comes at a great cost to himself. It says in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The price it costs Jesus to give us forgiveness is his blood. And Jesus is perfectly committed to us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse five says he promises to never leave us or forsake us. If you think of all the times you have failed Jesus, he has every right to give up on you, but he doesn't. He promises he never will. He's committed. Until we understand the companionship and forgiveness and commitment that we have from Jesus, we're going to be searching for all of these things from our spouses. And when our spouses don't give them to us, it will crush us. And so we'll lash out at them. We'll withhold our companionship and our forgiveness and our commitment and a downward spiral is going to begin. A spouse is a great gift from God, but a spouse is a terrible God. A spouse is a great gift from God, but a spouse is a terrible God. And I think on one level, this is actually the biggest problem in Michal and David's relationship. Deep down inside her, I don't think she was primarily upset at David. I think she was upset at God because life hadn't gone her way. And her relationship with God had turned to bitterness and resentment. And because of that, she sought all the fulfillment she was meant to find in God from her husband, David. And he was not capable and or willing of giving her everything she wanted in life. And when she saw that David couldn't be God for her, 
she couldn't take it anymore. She lashed out at him. A spouse is a great gift from God. A spouse is a terrible God. If you're looking for your spouse to give you all the things you should be getting from God, your marriage is doomed. It's only when we understand we already have all these things from God, regardless of how our spouse treats us, that we're actually going to have the security to pursue our spouse with love, even when the relationship feels unbalanced and it feels like they don't deserve our love. So church, to have healthy marriages, we need to show our spouses companionship, forgiveness, and commitment, but these things don't come naturally. It's only when we experience God giving us each of these things that it sets us free to do them for our spouses, even when they don't deserve it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us so many pictures in your word of how you call us to live and people who do that well, people who do that poorly, people who do a little bit of both. God, we confess that we have a tendency to act in the ways that are natural to us rather than the new ways that you call us to live. I pray that you would help us to have strong and healthy marriages with companionship and forgiveness and commitment. I pray for your Holy Spirit to fill us and empower us to live the way that you call us to live even when it's hard, even when it takes sacrifice. God, teach us to love you and trust you each day. In Jesus' name, amen.